everyone, Greg here. We have a really awesome guest on the Eater Upsell today. It's Vivian Howard, the chef and co-owner of Chef and the Farmer in Kinston, North Carolina. And you might have seen her on A Chef's Life on PBS. So we're going to be talking to her, but actually I am not going to be talking with her. This episode features a conversation between Vivian, Helen, Rosner, and Eater's Editor-in-Chief, Amanda Clute. So I'm going to be listening along with you. Here we go. Um, well, you know, I didn't set out with the, you know, intention to write a 600-page book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I actually, I got into cooking because I wanted to be a, a food writer. I feel so silly saying that to y'all. but um, And so when I had the opportunity to do this, I just took it. And there's a lot of stories in the book, and that's really, I think, what makes it so big. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fully intended um, or expected my editor to slash it and take a lot of it away, but they they didn't. And um, so, I mean, that I guess that's why it's so big. Yeah, no, it's, it's beautiful. Can you go over a little bit about the organization of the book? Because I think it's it's not super traditional. Wait, yeah. before we do that, though, I have to marvel at the physical size of this for, for those of you who have not picked it up yet because of our audio show, um, like picked up the sheer enormity of the physical object that we're describing. This is 567 pages or some huge, I mean, that's a huge number and it's a physically like tall and wide book. Yeah. It weighs the same as my daughter did when she was born. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, people talk about their cookbook is like delivering a child and you literally (laughs) birthed a human baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the um, joy of cooking or... Um, yeah, one of those giant compendiums. It's not the joy of cooking um, because I'm not that accomplished. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of, um, there's a photo for every recipe and that takes up a lot of space. Oh, it's gorgeous. And there's um, really beautiful illustrations that open up every chapter and every chapter is kind of organized like our show where every chapter is about an ingredient and we go really deep into the ingredient there's humble recipes and more sophisticated recipes and there's a story that um, connects that ingredient to my life or my history or um, my region in some way Um, and you know the the way the book flows is really personal and not um, uh, by the alphabet. Alphabetical is what mm-hmm. that would be called, uh, <laughs> or um, seasonal. Um, so it's it's really a novel kind of way to organize it, um, and that's another thing that I felt like my publisher might say no to, but but they didn't. So you know, you have a, a, something I really love, especially for a book of this size, is that you you have like five different tables of contents. Like there are so many different ways to approach it. You can come at it from like an alphabetical organization, which I guess is what the index does. And then there's by ingredient and by, you know. Right. If you just want to make a soup, there's a, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an index like, you know, here's all the soups or sides or breakfast or snacks because we wanted people to be able to use the book. And that's not really the way that I've necessarily set it up. Right. Um, Except that if you go to the farmer's market and you buy rutabagas, there's a a whole chapter on how to use a rutabaga. So how do you use other cookbooks? Do you start index first or recipe first? I read 
like from I read them like a book, you know, from start to finish. And I'm typically more interested in all the stories and and the head notes and the titles of recipes versus the recipes themselves. Um, so season three of your show, um, A Cook's Life, dealt a lot with the process of writing the book, which I, you know, I maybe I'm skeptical, but I feel like watching someone write a book is not something I would immediately think of as good TV. And it was riveting. There was so much <laughs> conflict. There was so much stress around <laughs> it. And you go to your friend's cookbook signing and you're like, oh, my cookbook is overdue. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a sense when you were gearing up to write the book that it was going to make for a season of the show or did it no. kind of come naturally? Well, the way that the show works is um, that we basically just film whatever it is I'm doing and Kardashian style. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I say that as a compliment. I don't know. I think that show is brilliant. Oh, well, good. I just don't want to be raising a bunch of little Kardashians, um, which is something I worry about with my children being on the show. Um, but I, you know, so it's like what I was doing. Uh, so we filmed it, but I, I was really nervous about covering the process of the book because, you know, when you, when you, um, shine a light on something that you're doing. Um, and then it, it has, it, it comes out in the real world. It's like, I'm opening myself up to so much scrutiny, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I was nervous about that because I really wanted the book to matter and for people to take it seriously and for people to enjoy it. And, um, but it just kind of made sense, you know, that, they're always, Cynthia, the director, they're always trying to find whatever's bothering me the most in my work life. <laughs> and they're going to zero in on that. And I was really, this was stressful. And the photo shoots and, you know, meeting my editor who wasn't my editor in the beginning, that was, you know, something that was a big source of stress for me. And so that's where they're going to be. If something's hard, they're going to be filming it. <laughs> that feels like it would be its own form of stress. It is. <laughs> it is. They're going to go with us on the book tour, at least the first part of it. And there's always like from, you know, there's the stress of the event or whatever I'm doing. And then there's these like little gnats in my ear everywhere that are sorry to call them gnats. But you know <laughs> what I mean? They're just very close and um, and and trying to catch everything that I'm doing. I think for a, a lot of cooks, especially um, cooks with TV presences, they'll write their book because they want to sort of share who they really are and share their true story and their true voice. Um, and that's often because these are folks who are like hosting competition shows or are doing stand in stirs. And in your case, your show reveals pretty starkly who you really yeah, are. People I mean, already know a lot about me. And, and so how did you translate that to the book as an like an additionally autobiographical object. Um, well, you know, in the in the show, you you see who I am by, based on what I'm doing at the moment. You know, and a lot of the stories in the book are are related to um, my childhood or um, Eastern North Carolina's history, um, people that I've met along the way. Um, one of the stories I write is about um, Miss Lily, who teaches me a lot on the show. She taught me to make biscuits. She taught me to stew rutabagas. She teaches me how to be humble all the time. Um, 
And then another story is about Miss um, Barwick, who teaches me to make hand pies, and just the um, additional impact that they have had on me that you don't necessarily see in the show. Um, and this comes up in the show a lot, but I know from reading the intro to the book, you did not always approach food this way. And so I think our audience at home might not know the show or might not have read this yet. So can you talk a little bit about how your approach evolved? Because I know when you first moved back home, you brought all these tricks you learned from New York and you wanted the farmers to grow vegetables just for you. And then you had to learn that actually you're going to cook with these native ingredients. Right. Yeah. When I moved back to North Carolina, I was still, I was not in love with the idea of being there. And I, I felt in a lot of ways, like I was like the failed cliche, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And well, I couldn't. So I came home and like that, that was like really painful. And so I, um, I was still very much, um, connected to New York culture and the restaurants and ingredients. And so, um, I, I think I, I was really kind of arrogant and, um, and I, I did not see the food that I grew up eating as, uh, valuable or interesting or multi-layered or anything like that. And so I was cooking like sad versions of things that I had done here or seen here. And, you know, I, I think I'm being a little bit hard on myself. The food was, was, was good. It was fine, but it, I wasn't speaking to anyone. And, um, and so by a little twist of fate, I ended up making this barbecued chicken that was in the spirit of Eastern North Carolina style vinegar based barbecue. Um, and it, people like were crying, not really, but <laughs> this is the blueberry barbecue yeah. chicken, right? Yeah. Which I, I mean, that's such a perfect twist too. You made it your own, but it was very much of the place. Right. It was, um, it was familiar, but different. And it, it, it did, it doesn't compete with anyone's, um, memories of their own barbecued chicken, but it's, it's, it, it's touches people, I guess. And That's really interesting. The idea of competing with memories. I, I never really gave this much thought, but it feels like it makes a lot of sense that when you want to connect to someone's sense of nostalgia, it's a delicate balance. It is. It is. I think you want to get close enough that you remind them of it, but um, you don't. You don't want to try and uh, replace it or top it, because um, I think you'll always fail. You know, that's <laughs> that's the whole like ketchup thing. You know, yeah. like homemade ketchup. Just stop making it's it. It's never good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because that taste memory is is so imprinted in us. It's just like encoded in our DNA. If yeah. You're, a yeah. Heinz person or a Hunt's person, and then nobody is anything else. Right. It's like nobody is a house-made ketchup person. No. And if they are, they're lying. They're yeah, lying. Horribly. And I can appreciate some house-made ketchups, but I'm still going to buy Heinz and, and favor it, especially like if I'm in the car alone with some fries. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you also a, like a, a mayo partisan? 
Are you Duke's ride or die? I am. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was raised on Miracle Whip. Shut mm, up. I know. Me too. I know. It's, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm learning so much about both of you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. And but, now I don't really have a taste for it. but Because Miracle Whip is disgusting. Yeah, for years and years, that's all I would put on sandwiches because that's all I knew. And mayonnaise seemed kind of disgusting to me. But then I grew up a little bit. Well, I, um, when I, I became involved with in the Southern Foodways Alliance and, you know, those, they're like so cool and it's like a, a team of brethren and they were like, had Duke's tattoos and shirts <laughs> and, and hats. And I'm like, what is this? And I just played along. Nobody was wearing a Miracle Whip shirt, that's for sure. <laughs> and so I went home and got some Dukes and, and, uh, actually kind of fell in love with it. You're converted. I'm converted. I mean, I, I do think that Duke's has more in common with Miracle Whip than it does with Hellman's. They both have that very sweet element to them, well, but now, it's, it doesn't have the gross thing that Miracle Whip has going on. If I'm correct, Duke's doesn't have any sugar in it. Really? That's what, that's its defining kind of characteristic. Yeah. But it has a, um, it has like a, a, a lemony thing. I don't think it has lemon in it, but it, it, calls to mind that. And, you know, I know the, this because we just did a mayonnaise episode. Oh, wow. That's going to be controversial. <laughs> and we did a blind. We, like, stripped. Did you make all, your own and then? No, we we tasted um, Duke's, uh, Miracle Whip, Hellman's, and um, Blue Plate. Oh, yeah. Um, all blindly, you know, no, no s- clues or anything. And so when you do that, you can really, uh, without the label to, to, you know, sway you, you can really taste the mayonnaise. So which one won? I can't tell. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> was there was there a, a division or was there one clear winner? Was, there was a small division. Okay. But I, I feel like your audience, your Southern audience is going to like rise up. I know. If it's not Duke's. <laughs> I know. Well, that's when, you know, we just. I, 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 I'll never tell. <laughs> it's not even on the show? No. Oh, so it wasn't oh, Duke's. Wow. So it definitely no, no, wasn't that's not why. <laughs> that's not why. It's because, um, you know, on PBS, we can't um, say anything that would, you know, convince you to go buy a brand. Oh. So we had the answer in the show, and PBS came back and said, that's no. too promotional. Wow. And so, wow, that you, is TV editing. I would not have expected. Yeah, PBS is is different. It's a different breed for but, sure. So, what else do you have to keep in mind because you're on PBS instead of on network? Well, you can't cuss. <laughs> and, Was that a big problem? Well, in the beginning, yeah, because I, um, I mean, I worked in the kitchen my whole adult life, and I love to say stuff. In, in like three years, your show will be on HBO and it will be like all F-bombs and no one and, will wear a shirt. So <laughs> much, so much product placement. <laughs> and then um, I started, so I, then I would say, Jesus Christ. And um, instead of the other thing that I was saying, and they came back and said, you can say Jesus or Christ, but you can't put them together. <laughs> That's so, incredible. <laughs> Um, so brands, you know, you can't show brands, um, you can't, um, our sponsors in the end, you know, the, the spots that they have, the people can't look like they're having a good time in those. We built more as a sponsor of the show and they have this ad at the end of the show that's really nice and it's people drinking wine and they're 
clicking their glasses, and PBS came back and said, um, please take the smiling people out of the spot. They no. look like they're having a good time <laughs> at Biltmore. Oh That's my really crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess there's a certain logic to it where if you're just like showing a still frame of know. the building, it's like a fact and people being happy is subject. I, I'm trying to make this work. That one, you know, that comment, we all just kind of sat back and, you know, scratched our heads. But I, I actually understand and admire the um, principle behind, behind it. And, and it's one of the reasons I'm really proud to be on PBS because, you know, there's no, um, there's no ulterior, messaging. You know, we can just make the show that we want to make and um like they're not pushing you to be more dramatic or no, not more conflict. It's or, just like funnier, or hold up or, a Pepsi can yeah, or yeah, yeah, the opposite. Like right. you're not allowed. I mean they let us make a show about Eastern North Carolina. Yes. It's like <laughs> So wild. And for those who haven't seen, every episode is dedicated to one ingredient. Yeah. You learn all about it. And someone, usually some sort of grandmother, teaches you how to cook a traditional dish. And then you serve it on the menu in the restaurant. So it is, um, you know, not the most scintillating on paper, but you watch it and it's it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, I think that it's uh, it's just a really lucky mix of things that that work. And Cynthia, the director of the show, I think is really a brilliant storyteller. And um, she's also from uh, Eastern North Carolina. She grew up about a mile from me. So we both get the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And Did you guys know each other while you were growing up? Yeah. Her sister, her younger sister is a good friend of mine. And um, I... she. She made a Cynthia made a film about Eastern North Carolina and tobacco. It's called Tobacco Money Feeds My Family. And I just love the way she represented um, our people there. And it's really a delicate, um, a delicate thing when you're trying to tell a story about rural folks um, and and wanting to highlight their wisdom and and their way of life. And so anyway, yes, I knew her growing up and approached her about doing this project. So you you do strike that balance really carefully in the show where you're sort of respectful and appreciative of the wisdom of people who are older than you are or people who might come from like a slightly different social or cultural group without pushing it into this realm of like they are mystical figures and like they don't have humanity beyond what they can teach to us, which is really extraordinary. I mean, was, I, I'm assuming that was an intentional choice yeah. in how you constructed the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, our, our goal is really just to show, um, people, all people as people, you know, um, myself included. And, and, you know, I am appreciative of the people that we have on the show because they let us do that and they're honest and they're open and um, they share so much of themselves with us. Um, but yeah, we don't, there's no reason to to make people what they're not, I guess. I think it's refreshing and people are responding to it. Have people approached you for more opportunities now? Like I'm sure the cookbook was one, but is there more because of the show and the success of it? Um, not really anything that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like Vivian Howard, the movie. 
Well, the actually, line. that's interesting. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> um, there was someone approached us about um, a series, like a dramatic, like a a dramatic series on television that would be based around my life. This will be the topless swearing HBO show. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> With the branding everywhere. <laughs> but I, I, I don't, I don't want that. Right? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is a kind of. There's a good narrative there about you. I mean, for our listeners who don't know, you left home when you were, what, freshman in high school mm-hmm. to go to boarding school because you were so desperate to get out of the countryside and then spent, I don't know, the next decade escaping home. And then you were called back to home after spending time in New York and in Argentina. So I think I would totally watch I would this. buy that script. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that they said, which I thought was really interesting, is that they've tried to do restaurant based things before because, you know, restaurant culture is so hot. But because it's always just been based on the restaurant, it's never really worked. So they felt like this this was a different angle. They're also interested in like a Southern um, strong woman. And I just saw like this Reba McIntyre thing happening. <laughs> and I, I'm like, no. <laughs> It's something we actually talk about pretty frequently in the Eater office is how frequently TV and movies try to show food culture and how absolutely consistently they completely fail. I know. I was so, I get excited about uh, this is going to be it. And then I watch it and I just get so pissed off. Oh, um, yeah. We went to see Burnt as an office. And it was horrifying. You were burnt. Yeah, so sure. It was, so, <laughs> it was so bad. And, you know, they'll always be like, you know, and such and such famous chef like consulted and was there on set every day and made sure everyone held their knife properly. And then it's garbage. Yeah. It's so depressing. Is that, I, I mean, there is such natural drama to a restaurant and to a kitchen, but I guess you can't just be like, oh, food is trendy. We'll make the main character a chef and it's done. It's so interesting to me because you're right about the knife work and holding a knife. I watched a, a movie where they're like commenting on how great the knife, his knife work is. And he's like sitting there like jamming it on <laughs> the cutting board. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. But uh, the, who's the actress who did the the ballet? Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. But Natalie Portman can learn to be a, you know, prima ballerina. Right. Yeah. And we can't have a, a chef learn to like an to actor learn to hold a knife. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder why it never really lands. Maybe, Maybe the, good, need to the good people aren't saying yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> Maybe that's you right. need to get in there and fix it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I'll consult. It just doesn't have to be about me. About right, that. right, right. You don't need to sign away your life story for right. them to mangle. Did you think that you were going to be a star? Like, did you did you expect that your life would take you in this direction where you would you would have your, your face on the cover of a cookbook? Well, I um, I don't really think of myself as a star. Uh, and so, no. Um, and but when you I, technically do star in a TV show. I do, but yourself. no, I like host. Right. I mean, you, you can call it whatever you want, but Amanda and I are going to quietly behind your back refer to you as a star. Well, thank you. All my sisters, they call me a star. They're, they're, they're very proud. My dad calls me, he's always called me big time. So maybe I was destined right. for this. But, um, you know, there's, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Like I'd like to turn the book over right now and look at the backside. Well, your hair is uh, different now. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> that's, um, when I was done with the book, I, that's when I cut my hair and I was talking to my editor and I, I said, you know, I just got a major haircut. He said, that's very common 
when people, you know, turn in a book or they want a, a change. So It's like the breakup haircut. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> like when you get out of a relationship, you're like, okay, like, I'm going to. Yeah. I did it as soon as I had my baby. The next week, the first time I left the house, I got a haircut. Really? Because I was like, I need a new something. I need to be a new person. Cynthia, the, the director of the show, was very upset. That you cut your hair? Oh, no. Yeah, because I shouldn't really change my look mid-season. Right. And... <laughs> Again, like a secret of television that never would have occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, because we... Do we you have to go back and film things for another, an older episode? Well, we make, we do all the parts where I sit in front of the camera and talk. We do all of those in two days. Mm-hmm. And so I just change shirts. Right. And um, so it, it won't work if my hair is different. You could get extensions. Uh, we'll make it. Ways yeah. to make it work. We'll make you know, it work. And I can just, it back in some I'm like, can way. I just say, hey, y'all, I got a haircut. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have a little while till that matters. So I'm hoping it'll grow. Sure. Time heals everything. But Helen was asking if you always wanted to be a star and you were about to be very humble about it. But I think in the intro to your book, you mentioned that you always you wanted to make it big in New York, but you thought it was going to be in maybe writing or I wanted to be a journalist. Well, I I started, I got a job in advertising, which was the closest thing I could get to a job in journalism. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to, I guess I've always wanted to be a storyteller and don't we all want to feel like the work that we do is really good and noticed by others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, we're both journalists. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. I I can believe that what I'm doing is quality, but until somebody else tells me it is, I have a really hard time believing it mm-hmm. deep down, I guess. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs external approval. Just like those people who say that they prefer house-made ketchup, like anyone who says otherwise is totally lying. Yeah, they're totally lying. Yeah. <laughs> you, every, everyone likes bottled ketchup and approval, right? Yeah. That's pretty universal. And if, you know, that's one of my issues with my um, profession and the and many of the people in it is that we're required to like wear this shield of armor that implies we know everything there is to know about food and that we're some kind of like transcendent badass and I just don't believe that and I don't believe that those people believe that and when you say your profession like you, chefs. You you wear so many hats. Do you think of yourself still as a chef? I don't know what I how I de- describe myself. Um, you know, I think a chef is someone who runs a kitchen and does it on a daily basis. And I don't do that right now. Um, I would like to do more of that, but maybe on my own terms. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to describe myself. That's a good question that I should probably figure out. <laughs> you don't necessarily need to. <laughs> it's cool. We're get, we're just getting into therapy territory. It's cool. <laughs> like, uh... Speaking of therapy, I'm going to use this as a segue and talk a little bit about running a business with your family. Uh, I know you own the business with your husband and your two adorable children show up in the show quite a bit, but also it was your parents and your in-law and I guess your sister that brought you back. So is that, does that complicate things a lot or is it something that's added new richness to your life? 
Um, you know, working with your spouse is uh, definitely hard. And, you know, I uh, run the kitchen, he runs the front of the house. So those two roles are, you know, set up in opposition. You know, they're the front of the house and the kitchen in most restaurants. There's very adversarial. Yeah, there's a tension. And so that has been the biggest challenge. And it's actually been really good for our marriage um, for me to to not be at the pass at night. Um, so and then with my parents, um, you know, I'm the baby. I have three older sisters. And so I, they while they have always believed in me. I think they they treat always treated me like the baby. And so when we moved back and we're going to open the restaurant and and I told them what we were the concept was and what we were going to do, they got completely freaked out and actually tried to hire another chef no. <laughs> in town to just usher me in and and work alongside me. And that was that was bad. What was it that they didn't like about your ideas? Um everything. <laughs> you know, they wanted and you know, my parents had limited exposure to restaurants and they felt like the restaurant that would be successful where we lived would be a steak house with a salad bar and baked potatoes. And um and I I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and which is fair. Yeah, and it would have it probably would have been successful and I I I'm toying with the idea of a a salad bar of sorts right now. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with salad bars. <laughs> yeah, I mean everyone loves a good yeah. salad bar. Salad bars and, are amazing. And everybody loves a good baked potato too. Mm-hmm. It's true. And they're both things that I mean that also baked potato bar. Every, just bars. <laughs> yes. Just well, everything should be everything a buffet. Everything should be a buffet. <laughs> you should come to Eastern North Carolina. <laughs> I would be very it. happy there. I, I can take you on a buffet tour. <laughs> oh my god, that actually sounds like heaven. The only like true salad bar in New York City is around the corner from our office. It's in a Ruby Tuesday. Oh, really? But New York is full of of delis that have steam table mm-hmm. bars, and they have like sort of by the pound salad bars in there. But strangely, like this is improbably enough, no restaurant, at least in Manhattan, has a sort of like salad bar with entree style salad bar, and it makes me very sad. Yeah, Ruby Tuesdays, I think, is the owner of that here. Yeah. But wouldn't it be great to have like a salad bar that has really cool, delicious stuff on it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Not- I think there was someone in Philadelphia opening that because the theme of his restaurant was 90s. Oh. And so he's like, I'm doing a gourmet salad bar, too. Oh. And it's like, well, you should people should just do that anyway. Yeah. I went to a steak and baked potato and salad bar restaurant in Western North Carolina that I now cannot remember the name of. It's like a mini chain that's based in Tennessee and it's like peddlers. Peddler, the peddler. peddler. Yes. They come out and cut your meat for you. Yeah, they bring everything about it was the most spectacular throwback (laughs) experience. They literally bring out a tray of raw steaks and you pick it and they cut your ribeye off of the and it was amazing. But the salad And then they cook it. And then they cook it. And the salad bar was this like jeweled wonder. 
of like a seven ninety nine salad. It had caviar in it. I mean, oh, really? It wasn't wow. like caviar in quotes, but like <laughs> there was some fish roe of some sort right. in the ca- and it, and there was soup in the salad bar and like a giant wheel of cheese and it was magical. One of the uh, restaurants I write about in the book it's called the Baron and the Beef and it was my favorite place as a kid. We went there on um, Friday nights and their salad bar um, had smoked oysters on it and meatballs in a crock and this um, I don't know I think we call it pub cheese now, but it's like a, a cheesy spread. Yeah. And it's I mean, like a very generous definition of salad. Yeah. Right? Like you're not really <laughs> yes. gonna put salad and things. <laughs> yes. But it's so great. It's so great. And I love how the old uh steakhouses from that era were like dark mm-hmm. and there's like no windows, maybe like a round like uh sailor window. And I don't know. I just I get all fuzzy inside when I think about that place. So this will be your next restaurant. Maybe. Oh maybe. my God. It will be my favorite restaurant in the entire world. I will move to North Carolina to hang out near your restaurant. Well, get ready. <laughs> so ready. Well, and you already have the two spaces um, in that town. Are yours the only two restaurants? It's, it's a pretty small town, like 20,000 people. Um, there's, there are other restaurants, and the Baron and the Beef is still there. Okay, that's oh, good. And is it the same as always? Yeah, but you know, it's it's not quite what I remembered. But Have the they salad added, like, bar quinoa? is the, No, it's just the beef is not like what it used to be. Um, but the salad bar? The salad bar is the same. And maybe you could talk to them, strike a deal. Come in, partner up with them. I don't think they'd they'd like me that much. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, thank you. We're fine. Yeah, we've we've got this figured out. <laughs> so I imagine a lot of the folks who come to your restaurant are people who are fans of the show. But have, did you find your your sort of harmony with the t- with the community itself? Do you have a lot of locals who come in? Yeah, you know, we've been open for ten years, so um, we were busy before the show. But we've always kind of depended on people to travel from like Raleigh, which is an hour and a half, or Wilmington, which is an hour, um, to really keep us, you know, full. But uh, we had some local resistance in the beginning. Um, People just, I think they were suspicious of our intentions and uh, didn't really think that we would stay. And they were certainly suspicious of the food. Um, But we, you know won some people over over time. And then we had a fire. Our our kitchen burned um, about five years ago. And that was, uh, I think, a great opportunity for us to, if our intentions were to leave, we could have left. Mm -hmm. And um, the community, like, really rallied around us. And um, it was, like, the first time I actually felt um, like a part of the community People helped and and were so supportive. And so now we have tremendous buy in. <laughs> and all it took was a fire. <laughs> Sometimes silver lining it's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. A fire is, is one of, if not the worst things that can happen to a restaurant, too. I feel like it's. And it's, it's not so completely uncommon yeah. either. Yeah, no. And it's the way that ours happened is. is crazy. And it's something that I think that more restaurateurs need to know about. Um, so I'm just going to tell you yeah, right now. Yeah. We'll put in like our PSA music. Right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Pay attention. Chefs and restaurateurs, it's about to happen. So we have, you know, how you get linens, like your your side towels and your aprons and everything. And they give you a mesh bag 
that the linens come in, and then you're supposed to put your dirty ones back in there. And so we had run out of the mesh bags, and we had dirty side towels. Some of them had, like, oil on them. Um, there were some wet ones, and I'm um, presumably some dry ones. And we put those in a plastic trash bag and tied it up, and it spontaneously combusted, what? caught fire, and like kind of exploded right underneath uh, the, the sensor. So we know when it happened, and we know how quickly it happened, and, and it caused it. And it was right next to our uh, paper goods shelf. Oh <laughs> All of that just like it's kindling. Um, but, you know, I had no idea that this was a fire hazard or, um, and, you know, we, we talked to the linen company later. They're like, oh, yeah. This, that happens all the time in the in the warehouse, and most people keep their dirty um, bags of linens outside. So now we do, and That's you should terrifying. too. That is terrifying, and still I don't understand how the mechanics of that. But that is insane. I don't either, but it's um it's it's true and and scary. That is not something that they warn you about no. in life. That no. you're dirty laundry can spontaneously combust and burn down your business. It has to have oil. There has to be this perfect cocktail of things mm -hmm. in there. But, yeah. Oh but it Lord. is interesting how something like a fire does bring out the community to support you. I've, I've heard that so many times with restaurateurs who have experienced tragedies like that. Yeah, you know, and a fire is something that you can um, very you can share when you see, you know, people were driving by mm -hmm. and looking and it's not like a personal uh personal problem that is very um, insular, you right, know, it's something visceral. that everybody can see. And so I think that it, it brings out the best in people. And um, your family had already come around years earlier, I assume. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the trying to hire another chef thing was, was <laughs> relatively uh, short-lived. And when we opened, um, they, you know, they quickly realized that we knew a little bit more about what we were doing than they thought. And um, as soon as we lowered the price of the tea, my mom stopped complaining. She <laughs> compared it to Ruby Tuesday's tea and, and the price there, so we had to match it. And wow. um, so we're all good now. Tea is, like, frequently a sticking point for people. I think we hear stories all the time about folks who bring in their own tea bags or complain that tea shouldn't cost more than a dollar. And there was... There was a restaurateur maybe sometime in the last year who I remember like responded to some complaint on Yelp with just like an incredible breakdown of like you need to How, understand the cost. Yeah, that when I bring you a cup of tea, you're also contributing to my rent and you're contributing right. to people's mm -hmm. salary and tea is but not I think just you hot can't water. Help yourself. Like I went to a hotel restaurant the other week and it was seven dollars for a cup of tea and I was just like, oh God, you are ripping me off. It's hard because you know it's main just water mainly right, and right, it's, right. But, but I you know, understand. It's also the glassware mm -hmm. that it comes in. You know, there, it's like wine. You know, why does it cost? We have a wine shop. Why does the wine cost more in the dining room than it does in the wine shop? Right. Well, because we, we break eight wine glasses a night and, <laughs> and we have to pay for those. And, you know, um, the service aspect of it beyond just the tip costs money. And I guess it's the same for tea. Mm -hmm. But tea's like mayonnaise. And and ketchup and, you know, you, you like it a certain way. And my mom is a tea connoisseur. Oh. And she can actually smell old tea. You know, oh, wow. she's like, we're going to do a tea episode before this is all over so I can get her, <laughs> get her, um, her 
her tea wisdom. Is she into like, like, you know, pu'ers and oolongs and all of the rare stuff? Oh no, stuff, she's like Lipton, Lipton all the way. <laughs> yeah, okay. But she can smell an old Lipton. Yeah, she's like it's a gotta Lipton be pro. Yeah. Yes, and she likes it um, half and half, so half sweet and half unsweet. How does that work? So, like, if she goes to um, a restaurant and she's orders iced tea, she says, put oh, half, I do that. I'll yeah, do that. Oh. half sweet and half unsweet in there. And the ratio's got to be like perfect. So I always encourage her to pour her own. <laughs> Make your own tea, yeah, mom. I can't take it. <laughs> um, well, speaking of family, again, just one more thing. Um, is it, are they, are they there to help you out with your kids too? Is that another added benefit of being in your hometown? Oh uh, yeah. Um, we, we were we lived in their house um, when I had my children, and they lived in a little house behind it. We have this mm-hmm. like compound. We call it Howardville, <laughs> and um, we our plan was to build a house uh, about a ten minute drive from where we were living. And once I had my children, I'm like, oh no, we are staying right here because I need I need y'all, and just it's as simple as like. For, for 30 minutes, and I'll go to the grocery store or something like that, and my dad comes over every morning before as we're, before we go to school, and um, it's, it's just so wonderful to have them be a part of, uh, to see the way that my children affect them and, and vice versa. Um, it's, it's a huge gift. Do you bring the kids to the restaurant? I do not. You know, when we before the fire, they were they were the fire happened when they were nine months old. And I had a little nursery at the restaurant in this back room. And it was ridiculous because I would bring them and like I'm just in the nursery with them. Like and then I had a sitter come and stay in the nursery and I'm working and it's just like, okay, this is it's not working. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so after the fire, we didn't replace the nursery. Um, but restaurants are dangerous mm-hmm. and, you know, there's hot stuff and sharp stuff. And, and so I, I am not, I have not included them in, in my restaurant work. Although my son wants to be a juice chef. That's what he says. Uh-huh. He likes to juice stuff. Okay. And fun very, new very, profession. very trendy. Yeah, yeah. So just like before I came here, they had to draw for school what um, what they wanted to be when they grew up. And my daughter wants to be an artist, and she drove this drew this really nice picture of she and an easel, and he draw he draws this truck, and then like a, an apple and him, and and he says he's going to be a juice chef. So I bet he's the only one in his class. <laughs> so great. If he's not, then we know that something's up. I know, really. I know, really. like six kids in his class all want to be juice chefs. So like, they will now. They will now. Well, Vivian, we have come to the time in our episode, what we like to call the lightning round. I'm always scared of these. Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's super fun. easy. It's going to be really fun. We have literally no idea what, what, what questions you're about to get, though, so maybe it's going to be terrible. Um, our Eater New York editor, Greg Morabito, usually my co-host on the Upsell, um, recorded a couple of questions for you that we're going to pipe in and just answer them however you want. Hey, Vivian. How's it going? It's Greg Morabito, the other host of the Eater Upsell. I hope you've been having a great time with Helen and Amanda. I just have some lightning round questions for you. Uh, Things I would love to ask. Okay, lightning round question number one. 
What seasonal vegetables are overrated? Oh, Lordy. Um, seasonal vegetables that are overrated. Well, kale. Um, Is that even a seasonal vegetable just, anymore? No, it's always there. No, it's there. <laughs> okay, how about the seasonal vegetables that are not overrated? Tomatoes? Um, Those are the best. Peaches? That's not a vegetable, but I love a good peach. Um, Jerusalem artichokes? Oh, that's that's a good one. Unexpected choice. Yep, that's my that's my answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. What's one thing we'll never find in your restaurant under any circumstance? Housemade ketchup. <laughs> good callback. There we go. <laughs> yes. Excellent. If only that had been the last question, it would have been the perfect framing device for this episode. But we'll stick with it. us <laughs> through a few more questions, even though we reached a natural closing point. <laughs> we'll find another one. Yeah, it'll be great. Next question. What's something that people don't understand about the South and or Southern cuisine? Um, I think people believe that uh, Southern cuisine is all about the meat. And I think it's all about the vegetables. And um, I, I just wrote a 600-page book, and there's no recipe for fried chicken in it. That's like a major fact. I feel like that's the law, is if you write a cookbook these days, it has to have a fried chicken recipe in yeah, it. Yeah, and it was actually a source of angst for oh, my really? publisher. And I'm like, I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing, I'm not going to add to the conversation with my recipe for fried chicken. Right. So you could have added like a sidebar that was like seven other cookbooks that have pretty good fried chicken. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you need them. <laughs> All right. Next question, please. What's one skill you wish you'd learned when you were young? I wish I could play an instrument, the piano. I wish I could play tennis. I think it's a great sport for adults. Is tennis, a, I guess it is a skill. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not too late. Do you play? Well, I, um, I, I, my senior year in college, I had to take PE, so I took tennis thinking that I would learn. And what I figured out was like everybody else that was taking tennis knew how to take it, knew how to play. Mm. And so I, I was like, nobody wanted to be my partner. And I almost um, didn't graduate because I couldn't pass oh, tennis. Oh, it was awful. God. I played tennis in high school because you could be stoned when you played tennis. Oh, <laughs> that is a yep. great reason. That is a good yeah, reason. It's just real laid back. <laughs> I was forced to take tennis lessons until I was about 12, and then I oh, ran wow. far away from it. My children are five, and I already have them in tennis. Yeah. Good. I was like, we're going to do, do that this. to my kid. Yeah. I'll get stoned, play tennis. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Really funny. Good family activity. <laughs> do we have more questions? When people recognize you from TV, do you think it's fun or does it make you uncomfortable? I don't think it's fun, uh, but it's not like, like, oh, so flattering. Yeah, no, no. It, and it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Um, I, actually, it makes me feel I'm always like, I know I just let them down because I'm really not that exciting. It's, I think it's sometimes better not to meet the people that you admire on television because the, the curtain is pulled back. Has, has that ever happened to you? Have you met a hero and been like, oh, I wish this had not just happened? Um, yeah, with some chefs. Uh, we'll get you to name names once the recording has turned off. <laughs> we'll, turn off. We'll, we'll name our names. People. Um, I think we have one more question. Isn't that right? When people ask you for advice about pursuing a career in the kitchen, what do you tell them? Culinary school or just start working? Just to start working. 
for sure. I also say whenever young people ask me about um, being a chef, I say, you know, I'm not I'm not um, encouraging you not to be a chef, but there's a lot of other careers in the food industry that don't require you to work every night and holiday for the rest of your life. So That seems like pretty good advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you should always work in a restaurant before you make that leap. To culinary school? or Yeah, to, yeah. to culinary school. And you graduated culinary school. You went. Yeah, I went. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Fair. We'll read a lot into that. <laughs> Vivian Howard, thank you so much for coming thank by the Eater you. Upsell. You can pick up her book, Deep Run Roots, in bookstores and on websites and pretty much anywhere else. And watch A Chef's Life on PBS, where you will not see the labels of any mayonnaise. Nope. <laughs> awesome. Thank y'all. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan and also sometimes in our satellite studio in sunny Los Angeles, California. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our studio team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Ewell. Our associate producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our associate producer and editor extraordinaire is Daniel Janine. And your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that guy over there, Greg Morbido. But the most important person in the creation of this entire thing is you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being exactly who you are.